All of us want happy relationships. Today we're going to start a four-week series called The Seasons of Marriage, talking about how to find the right mate and then how to have a great marriage. I'm Steve Hogg, pastor at First Baptist Church in Rock Hill. Really glad you joined us for this telecast. I'm praying God uses it to help you in your life and in your relationships. Please take your Bible and be opening to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians chapter 6. This morning we're starting a new teaching series called The Seasons of Marriage. See, I think all of us want a marriage that lasts, not just lasts, but that is strong and happy and fulfilling. And as I begin, I want to share some words with you that I think is important for us to remember. Okay? One is the word possible. I mean, what you just saw around this room illustrates that it's possible for marriage to thrive. It's possible for marriage to last, right? Because so often in our culture, we get the impression that it's not possible anymore, that most people don't succeed. And, and, and that impression created by the media because we get most of our impressions of what goes on in the world by movies and television and, you know, Hollywood, and music and magazines and all of that. And a lot of them don't know how to do what many of you have done. But the truth is, the majority of people who say, I do, make it. Did you know that? The, you've heard that 50% that of marriages fail. That's a, that's, that's a false statement. 50% of the people who get married do not divorce. It's more like in, around 30%. It's just that a lot of people who divorce get divorced more than once, and it drives that rate up. But the truth is, most people who get married stay in their first marriage. That's reality. So it's possible, no matter what the world tells you. Now, we all know there's way too much divorce and the heartache. We've seen it. Many of us have experienced it, either ourselves or up close with loved ones who've gone through it. So the first word is possible. The second word is rewarding. A marriage that lasts, a marriage that thrives is rewarding. There are some things you experience by living life together well for a long time you cannot experience any other way. There's something about a love that has, that has been deepened and that has, has developed over decades that someone who's not experienced that cannot fully appreciate because they've never experienced it. And so not only is it possible, it can also be very, very rewarding. Here's the third word. It's never automatic. Those of you who've been married 50, 60 years, was it automatic? You had to work at it. You had to do some stuff, didn't you? It's not automatic. You see, the thing is, most of us, when we, um, when we, we start out, you know, we're in love, and we're enthusiastic, and we, we're passionate, and we just assume it's going to work out. We don't always put a lot of thought into it. We just know it's going to work out. I mean, I, I remember... I remember the, the first time I asked Monisa out for a date. Um, I, I was her pastor, and she was active in our church in college. And um, I, was, I was doing a dating seminar. I was going to do a dating seminar on Friday night for the teenagers in our church. The do's and don'ts of dating, Christian dating standards and all that. And I called her and said, hey, here's what I'm doing. I'd like for you to help me with this dating seminar on Friday night. She said, okay. So we got together at her house to go over the curriculum. And after going over the curriculum, I asked her out. 
I thought that was pretty slick. <laughs> Our first date, we went to a steakhouse. And um, she was supposed to go back to she was supposed to go back to school um, that Monday, start classes, college. We're walking into the steakhouse, and I just jokingly tell her, I'm praying that God sends us a big old snowstorm so you can't go back to school. Just dumps a big load of snow on us. We go in. I eat steak. She's a cheap date. She eats salad. 35 years later, she eats steak. <laughs> so we eat, and um, we're joking about that, and we walk out of the steakhouse to the car, and guess what God blessed me with? Snow. Big old snowstorm. The next day I went out with an old Polaroid camera and took photographs of that snow and made a homemade card, taped those pictures to it, and on the front, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Got her some roses, gave them to her, and now her ringtone on my phone is let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. And so you start out and there's all that passion and all that enthusiasm, and you just know that it's, that it's going to work. But one of the keys to marriage working, and I want you to hear me, hear, hear, hear this the right way. Don't mishear this, okay? One of the keys to marriage working and thriving is marrying the right person in the first place. UCLA University uh, did some research. They, they, uh, they tracked some couples, and what they were studying was pre-wedding doubts. You know how you watch all these Lifetime movies and so on, and, and, and they all, well, oh, it's cold feet. It's just cold feet. It's just cold feet. It's just cold feet. You know, I may have been a little bit nervous standing up there, but I didn't have any cold feet. The movies make it out like it's just natural for everybody to have cold feet. Well, UCLA discovered that women who have all that cold feet before the wedding, who, are, who have these nagging doubts that they just, they just don't pay any attention to, do you know that couples who get married and the woman has that nagging doubt before the wedding, they are two and a half more times likely to divorce than couples where the woman did not have that nagging doubt? That's pretty substantial. It's as though you're, you're, you're trying to tell yourself something, but you don't want to listen to it. In fact, those with those doubts, within four years, one in, one, in, one, in, one in five of them were divorced. Within four years, it didn't take very long. You see, there's a biblical principle. These are some seeds. The biblical principle is that what you plant grows. I, I love these plants. <clears throat> On our back deck where there's some shade, I like putting these in pots because they get big and they stay red all summer. And, and you know, it's hard to get some beautiful color in the shade. And I just love these things. But, you know, I've never planted one of these and had it turn into a tomato plant. Have you? See, what we plant grows the verse on you on the screen and in galatians chapter 6 do not be deceived god is not mocked whatever a man sows this he will what now that's a principle that's true in practically every aspect of life it's true in marriage look at verse 8 for the one who sows of his own flesh just does what he wants just does what comes naturally focuses on the human side of things and ignores the spiritual side of things, will from the flesh what? 
reap reap corruption. You, You leave God out and there can be challenges. There can be problems. But the one who sows of the Spirit, who listens to the Holy Spirit, who follows the Lordship of Christ, reaps something very, very different. I want you to understand something. And today's kind of an introduction to this series. We'll get into the meat of it the next uh, three weeks. But the Bible teaches there are two priority relationships in life, okay? Now, if you don't know what they are, write them down. Here's the two priority relationships in life. God, your relationship with Jesus Christ. And the second one, your spouse, your husband, your wife. And those relationships are priorities in that order. Not equal, not wife, husband, and then God, but it's God, it's Jesus Christ, number one, first. And that's more than a slogan. Your spouse, second. Those are the two priorities of of life, priority relationships of life, Scripture teaches in that order through every season of life. They never change. And everything about our life, our decisions, our approach to living, our values, how we go about everything, flows out of how we approach those priority relationships. If God is the priority relationship of your life, that's going to shape every other relationship of your life. If he's not, if he's an appendage, if you're just kind of a church person, a religious person, you care about God, but he's not the priority relationship, then the impact he has on your other relationships is different than it is if he's Lord of your life. If your spouse is a priority relationship, That impacts all your other relationships. That impacts how you go about your career. That impacts how you go about everything else in life. But you've got to keep them in order through every season. So when we talk about the summer season of raising kids, and we'll get into that next week, probably the most challenging season for most couples. And then the fall of uh, the autumn of the empty nest, which is a challenging season for some other couples. Through all those seasons, these priority relationships don't change if you want the kind of marriage that God has ordained for you to have. Now, let me say in doing that, that you must love God the right way. Because there's some wrong ways to love God. And you must love your spouse the right way because there are some wrong ways to love your spouse and loving God and loving your spouse the right way through every season makes all the difference in the world now let me give you a biblical basis for these relationships being the priority ones and what that means for marriage all right the book of Genesis in your Bible look at chapter 1 the very beginning of of human existence in Genesis chapter 1 Verse 27, the Bible says that God created man in his own what? In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In other words, human beings, men and women, are created in the image of God. Now listen, nothing else in the universe is created in the image of God. 
Your pets are not created in God's image. Nature is not created in God's image. Only humanity is. That means we have a relationship with the creator that is unique. It means that as a man or a woman, you have the capacity within you for relationship with God that nothing else in this universe has. And here's what you need to understand. Before, and you may want to jot this down. Before there was a husband and wife, there was man and God. Which relationship came first? Before there was a husband and wife, there was a man and God. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, a living soul, the King James translates it. That's the one of the reasons the Bible in Deuteronomy 6 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God. How? We talked about it a few months ago for several weeks with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, etc., with your whole being. Not just when you're old, but when you're young. Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember also your creator when? In the days of your youth. In the days of your youth. There's never to be a season in life when you forget that there was man and God before there was husband and wife. That God is Lord. That God is the supreme love. That God is the priority relationship. Now, what does that mean for marriage? Several things. It means you cannot find your primary sense of identity in your spouse. If you find your primary sense of who you are, your primary sense of identity in your spouse, it's going to be incomplete. Because they can never be for you what Jesus Christ can be for you. You may have a spouse who doesn't want you to do what Jesus Christ wants you to do. What do you do then if they are your primary identity? They don't see everything about you. They don't see all the potential in you. They don't see all the good in you. No matter how much they love you, but God does. Your sense of who you are, your sense of worth, your sense of value. Now, do relationships impact that? Absolutely. Do I feel better and am I happier because Monisa's in my life? You better believe it. But, but you need to understand, I was who I was in Jesus before I ever knew her. And I would be who I am in Jesus if God took her to heaven. Now, would that impact my life? Absolutely. I'm not diminishing that. But our sense of who we are as disciples of Jesus Christ grows out of our relationship with him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It means that even though they make us happy, our greatest joy has to come from our relationship with Christ. We need to cultivate that. And it means that no other person can meet the deepest needs that only Jesus can meet because we are created in his image, not her image or his image. 
And sometimes along the way in seasons two or season three or season four, we forget this. Some of us never, 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 never come to understand this and have never found our identity in Jesus. And we struggle with these spiritual things because of that. It also means that, listen, the more you love God and the more you love God the right way, you're going to learn to love your spouse the right way. I'm going to tell you, the more you love God the right way, the easier it is for you to forgive your spouse. The more you love God the right way, the easier it is for you to be patient with him or her. The more you love God the right way, the more likely you are to look in the mirror and learn things about yourself that need fixing instead of always trying to fix him or her. The more you love God the right way, the more encouraging you are going to be, the more positive you are going to be. In other words, the more you love Jesus the right way, the better husband you'll be, the better wife you will be. And when you don't put him and your relationship with him first, you may do a good job, but you're not doing your best job loving your spouse. Because you can't apart from Christ. Because you're not becoming the best you that you can be apart from Christ. But now priority relationship number two, your spouse. Your spouse. Look in Genesis chapter 2. After saying that it wasn't good for the man to be alone, God said, I'm going to create a woman. And in verse 24, after doing so, Adam's response was, for this reason, um, Adam and God having this dialogue, and verse 24 just summarizes it beautifully. For this reason, a man what, what? shall leave his father and mother. Now, I know some of the millennials like to stay home a long time. God says, get out of the house. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become what? What church? One flesh. Do you understand there is only one person with whom you are one flesh? Your spouse. And that's not talking just about sex. That's part of it. But it's talking about so much more. The union of two lives becoming one in Christ. Unique relationship. Listen, you are never one flesh with your children. You love them with with, with every fiber of your being, but you're never one flesh with your children. You are never one flesh with your grandchildren. God intends for them to grow up and what? Move out. And have their own life, their own family. That that, that has implications for next week's sermon on the, the summer of raising kids. But the only person with whom you are ever one flesh in the eyes of God is your mate, your spouse. And this principle is true during every season of marriage, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Never changes. Never changes. Now, these two priority relationships, your relationship with Jesus Christ and your relationship with with your spouse, are like a continuing circle, if you will, of one just influencing the other if you're doing it the right way. I mean, obviously, your relationship with Jesus Christ influences your relationship with your spouse, right? 
The way you go about living influences how you go about being married. But do you understand that your marriage, your spouse, also has the potential to influence you spiritually, to influence that relationship with God? That's why what I said at the beginning, that, that one, of the, one of the key principles is marrying the right person in the first place. There's a tragic example in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, if you'll open to chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter 11. You know, the Bible says Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. I'm going to tell you something. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived when he was young, but when he got old, he was stupid. Now, I said it that bluntly because I want to get your attention, and you need to understand that when Solomon was old, he was no longer wise. A good start does not guarantee a good finish. That, that's part of messages number three and four. Solomon started out brilliantly. Didn't end up that way. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says about King Solomon that he loved many foreign women. Now, because of our political climate, I need to say something. This is not giving us a principle for Americans and Russians or Americans and Spaniards or Americans and Japanese marriage. Got nothing to do with that. Don't go there, okay? Don't, don't be naive. It's not talking about that. It's talking about a Jew marrying someone who didn't share his or her faith. So do biblical interpretation accurately, okay? Don't just let it suit your political preferences. Got nothing to do with one nation, another nation. These women worship, and, and it lists the different places, all these pagan gods. A lot of these were political marriages. You know how kings years ago, I guess some still do it, I don't know, married for political reasons, you know, you, you know, treaties and partnerships between different nations and all that. Well, Solomon had a lot of wives, a lot of concubines, a lot of women. That was his first mistake. And he, and he did it from all these nations, all these religions, all these cultures that God has said, hey, hey, don't, don't, don't go there. Why? Look at the end, of, the end of verse 2. They will surely do what? What does it say, church? Turn your heart. From what? Away from God so that you'll chase what? They're gods. See, marriage influences our faith. I think of one man who used to be a member of our church. He's not anymore. He and his wife have been married for decades. I know him well. They're, they're married. They've had, they've had a pretty good marriage. But he's, he's always been more committed to Christ than her. And he's always wanted to get more plugged into church and serve more and do more than her. And she's just always kind of held them back. And the result was he hasn't been as faithful as on one level he wanted to be. We influence one another. So you, you either are going to encourage your spouse in their walk with Jesus or you're going to hold them back. Or you're going, some, some even push them to run the other way. But, but, but it's, it's one of those options. Either run away or yeah, it's okay, but hold back a little bit. Or yeah, go all out and love Jesus. It's one of the three. That's it. That's what we do with one another. That's, that's how we impact one another. Well, in this chapter, look at verse 4, the impact on Solomon. Next slide, please. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord, his God. You see the trend? 
Now, look at the consequence. Verse 6. Next slide. Solomon did what was... <clears throat> did not follow the Lord fully. You see, here's the thing. Do you know where sin comes from? Not staying close to Jesus. You, you can follow him from a distance... You can follow him casually. You can follow him some. But if you're not following him wholly, the possibility of sin increases. Increases. And that's why in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, the Bible says that we're to watch over our heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. See, if you allow someone, and that includes relationships, to steal your heart, it impacts your life. <clears throat> and those of you who are young, who are single, is the reason you need to have Christian dating standards. Not just about what you do or don't do on dates, but about who you even date in the first place. I strongly encourage young people, if someone is not dedicated to Jesus, don't date them. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. doesn't mean that, that it can't work. But once you date someone, you can become emotionally involved, and then that makes it harder to extricate yourself if later you realize that's not the direction I want to be going. So protect yourself from that on the front side. On the front side. Let me skip ahead and show you a verse from uh, Proverbs 31, verse 30. Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be what? In other words, who the person is, their godly character and, 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 and their personality and the way they treat people, what's important to them, their Christ-likeness matters a whole lot more than outer beauty. Now, yeah, I know we need to be attracted to the person. I'm attracted to Melissa. She's a beautiful one. I get that. I'm not saying that doesn't matter. But brothers and sisters, you can be beautiful and just downright mean. And somebody can be not quite as beautiful and a jewel. Besides, you know when you fall in love, give it 20 years and you and her are both going to look different. <laughs> right? Can I get an amen on that? So you better pay, a, pay attention to real beauty because it matters more in the long run. Now, what about all of you who are already married? You say, hey, I, I, you know, God didn't have much to do with my dating. God didn't have much to do with it when I first got married. Maybe you're in a struggling marriage. I would give you the same advice I would give to anybody who's got a great marriage. Is keep these priority relationships in the right priority in the right order, in the right place, do it the right way. Because God's still in the business of changing hearts and changing lives and changing people and changing marriages. So just love, what would I tell you? Love the Lord first and love your spouse with the love of Christ and, and, and learn from some older happy couples. Now what did I say? Learn from whom? Old experienced happy couples. Don't try to learn from people who don't know any more than you know. 
because all they know is what you know. Learn something from somebody who knows stuff you don't know. Isn't that brilliant? Celebrate your marriage. If you're a young couple or you, you haven't been married many years, celebrate your marriage. One last, one last verse, Deuteronomy 24, 5. Look at, look at this verse, Deuteronomy 24, 5. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Amen, everybody said. Who knew that was in the Old Testament? Now, that's not our world, but here's the point. A new marriage is something to celebrate. And it's something to treasure. And it's something to invest in. It's something to take care of. You don't get married and then just go on about life and ignore it. And by the way, while the way you do it may change in the different seasons, taking care of the marriage, celebrating the marriage, treasuring the marriage, and focusing on the marriage is just as true in in, in the summer season and the fall season and the winter season as it is in the spring season. And some people go through divorce because when they hit summer, they forget. Because next week I'm going to teach you that the plants you plant in spring will not be blooming in the fall if you don't take care of them during the heat of the summer. So come back and find out what that means next week.